Hello and welcome back everybody to the OrthoTalk podcast, episode number 43. This week we have a very special and interesting guest, Dr. Daniel Paul. Dr. Paul is the sole orthopedic surgeon in his own practice called Easy Orthopedics in Colorado Springs. And he is one of the only orthopedic surgeons that I know of that runs basically a cash orthopedic practice. He is not affiliated with any insurance companies. And we talk a lot about this and how he got into it, the challenges he's faced, including finding implants, finding operating rooms, finding patients. Uh, We talk about his gripes with insurance companies and talk about the future for his business and what he thinks he can do going forward. So it's a very interesting episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. Without further ado, Dr. Daniel Paul. Hey, can we time out? All right. All good dudes. Stop what you're doing. This is time out. This is the OrthoTalk podcast. Today we are doing a real conversation with an illustrious guest. Surgeons today are Asit Khalid and Jay Chen. Antibiotics, ANSEF, of course, what do we even ask? Fire risk, high due to lit conversations and explosive topics. Any questions or concerns? Nope. All right, we can go. Incision. Welcome to the Ortho Talk podcast. We're at episode number forty-three, which uh, is a prime number, I think. So we've got a prime time guest for the prime number episode. Uh, his, his name is Doctor Daniel Paul. So welcome aboard, Doctor Paul. Hey, uh, thanks for uh, having me. All right, Doctor Paul is uh, he's, he's an orthopedic surgeon who's got a different type of practice. He's uh, he's got a cash-only practice, so. So really, we wanted to learn about that and and uh, and ask them some questions about what that's like. So, Dr. Paul, what what got you started in uh, in your cash only practice? Gotcha. So you know, when people think of cash only, they think I'm just you know it's just I'm like gaming after dollars here, and that's not really what it is. It's more it's less about love of money, and it's more about hatred of insurance. So by cash, I basically mean not insurance. So you know, that, that most of the time that is cash, but then there's some other sort of avenues that that works through as well. But to answer your question, how I got started, man, you know, I never thought I would be doing a kind of a solo cash-based practice at all, like when I was in residency. Um, so I basically had a couple of crises occur at the same time. Um, so finished my residency and I started a fellowship in hand surgery, actually. And I'm about halfway into this fellowship and I'm looking for a job and as you guys know, um, of course, you know, going through training and you're like, oh, you just assume kind of the jobs are there. Then you find out that they're not really um, or they're not what you think they were. So I'm looking for a job and my wife's from Colorado. So I've been dragging her all over the country, you know, by that point. And it's like, we're going to go back to Colorado somewhere, you know, along the front range. And I can't find a freaking job or the ones that I find. It's like, here's your four month guarantee, you know, <laughs> or uh you know, take our entire level three call like 24 seven. I'm like, man, these jobs are, are kind of garbage. And then, you know, my family's from Connecticut. So, you know, I interviewed out there as well. And it's just this old and bitter senior partner telling me how much money he made back in the early nineties. And like, man, this guy's bitter. And I think he said something to me. He's like, you know, if you take vacation, it's not just about the, you know, you know, the money you're spending. It's also the money you don't make, you know I mean? Talk about red flags applying. So, you know, that was going on. It is, it, it created, a sort of existential crisis where I'm like, you know, grinding away for so long, like as you guys did as well. And it's like, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, light at the end of the tunnel. And then it's just a series of tunnels. I mean, you're just going from one tunnel to the next tunnel. And it's, it, it was this kind of like moment where I was like, what am I doing? You know, like, why am I like, what am I doing? I mean, I like orthopedics, but like, is this going to be forever? So it was that combined with kind of a family crisis at the same time which caused me to, I just, I actually, I just quit my fellowship. I was like halfway done, you know, a hard decision to make by the way. Um, but it's one that had to be made. Um, you know, you don't start a year long fellowships thinking you're only going to, you're going to quit halfway through after, you know, going through four years of med school and five years of residency. So man, at that point, you know, I broke my lease, quit and just moved out to Colorado into my uh, in-laws basement. And I didn't really, you know, I had a friend who started a house called business doing internal medicine down in South Florida. I went to university of Miami. So he's down there. And I'm like, not only is he happier than anybody I know, he's also do, doing better financially. So I thought there was something there and I just kind of started um, figuring things out as I go from really essentially nothing. 
And I mean, it's been about two years and obviously I'm not in my in-laws basement in my mo- anymore. I'm in my own basement. So, uh, you know, step up in the world. So it's working, but, um, certainly it's a totally different way of practicing for there's sure. A, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back yeah. to fellowship. You're the first person I've ever met that's left a fellowship. Like, by voluntarily yeah yeah, yeah I, I want to clarify this i was not fired i, I, <laughs> I quit yeah you know, major difference right so what what was like like did you talk what, what were those conversations like you had to have talked to your attendings or like try to get some advice about that like that couldn't have been an easy decision for you no it was really hard i never ever thought i was going to make that decision yeah. i mean as far, as far as talking to the attendants it was basically the conversation of i'm leaving and i'm not coming back and that was it um you know you already made up your mind this wasn't like like trying to figure it out you made up your mind at some point like i'm done with this like sorry yeah yeah that was i mean it really there's obviously more nuances to it and everything like that but the the way the situation was at the time you know with my existential crisis and my family crisis it it had to be done It, it was an obvious choice although a difficult one so, you know, it's not, it is kind of weird, right? I mean, they, they were pretty gracious about it. I mean, I think the guy who I talked to, he would have given me money if I asked him to, um, you know, he was really concerned with helping me. Um, well, that's the person that I chose to tell that I was leaving. And then he told everybody else. Um, I never talked to my fellowship director ever after that. Um, so, you know, I don't know, you can, you can figure what you want about that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of weird. I mean, you go from grinding away, you know, in residency and fellowships, all of a sudden, just like a hard stop of just nothing, like just absolute nothingness. Like you're not on call, you're not doing anything. There's nothing on any schedules. I mean, you're just like out in the abyss, you know, and then just trying to piece things together from there. Was that um, liberating in any sense? Was that, you was that liberating in any sense? Just having oh, like, yeah. nothing on your plate? Oh my God. I mean, you become a person again. Like it's hard to explain what that means unless you're in the field and you're, and you, and you know what I'm talking about, but it's like, you know what, I can go to a movie on a Wednesday night if I feel like it, Yeah. you know, and I can make the decision to do that that same day. I mean, there's little things like that. So at first it was this, you know, and then it, it, you kind of get your life back to a certain extent. I mean, cause you, you sacrifice these small things as the years go on. You know, I mean, as the years go on, you know, whether maybe you used to work out all the time, maybe now you work out less and these hobbies used to have are slowly kind of chipped away at you until all you have is work in orthopedics. <laughs> and, you know, the, all that stuff kind of comes rushing back. Like once, you know, once you, you know, you, if you ever, you know, if you make a jump like that. So that's, um, a, that's something that we've kind of talked about, like just internally, you know, like this whole culture of beating you down, beating you down and making all those little sacrifices like acceptable to the point where when you're in your job and in your practice, it's just expected of you, right? And people take advantage of it. Like, oh yeah. Obviously you talked about insurance companies, but administrators, bosses, the CEOs, they all expect you to just do the right thing for the patient at all times, right? And obviously we do, we try our best, but a lot of times that comes with a lot of personal sacrifices, whether that's like missing your kid's game or, you know, taking, not working out or not eating a meal, right? All that stuff adds up. And it's, it, it really is just a culture of training. And I don't know, like, obviously neither me or Jay have ever experienced not having to do anything yet, but you, you get the sense that people beat it into you in order to take advantage of it later on. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of what you said is, is very relatable to, to everyone who's, who's been in it. Uh, we, all, we all get a little bit of that existential crisis from, from time to time, and we're wondering who are we really working for and are we really working for the patient anymore? Are we working for insurance companies and, and administrators? So, uh, man, I, I applaud you for your, for your that's, that must have taken a lot of courage, honestly, just to make those decisions that you made. Yeah, it, it was hard, right? I mean, you know, it, people kind of trusted me that if I was making that decision, it was for a good reason. Um, so everyone pretty much left me alone. You know, I think they felt bad for me. They're like, oh my God, what happened to them? Okay, let's just, you know. I don't know. So I kind of had some, you know, and my, my wife was thankfully supportive of what I was trying to do. Um, but yeah, man, it was like, certainly I'm living in my in-laws basement while, you know, my colleagues are graduated and getting, you know, like, you know, making obviously in the six figures and I'm just 
you know, screwing away, trying to rub two, rubbing two sticks together, trying to figure out what works here. So how close um, were you to signing a contract? Did you ever- I was not close. I was not close. I basically started the job search, kind of got a glimpse of it mm-hmm. and said, this is terrible. And then that's like kind of where it went, where it went from there. Was it mostly like private jobs? Um, the ones I was looking at. Yeah. 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 But I mean, truth be told, the operating expenses are so high. I mean, over as time goes on, overhead continues to go up right. and mostly in the ter- cost of human resources, right? Like insurance companies don't want to pay you, you know, so they make you jump through hoops. So you hire more hoop jumpers. Now all of a sudden you got to house all these hoop jumpers in your office and that drives overhead up. Meanwhile, reimbursements go down. So, you know, it's not, it's a tough game to keep playing. Yeah. Um, and what I found was that there's not too many small groups anymore. It's either these hospital owned practices or these massive conglomerations of giant orthopedic practices that are keep conglomerating. So, you know, pick your poison. I mean, they're, they're pretty similar, I think. Yeah. How'd you, how'd you get started in your, uh, in your current practice then? Did you, do you have any business background before you jumped into it? And what kinds of things were you, were you trying to do right off the bat to get started? Sure. So no, I don't have any business background. It's all trial and error and um, a library card trying to figure this all out. Um, which by the way, if you don't have a library card, I mean, my, my God, it's one of the probably the best things that you can get for yourself. Um, and it's free, but anyways, well, I, I knew that I had to do, I knew I couldn't take insurance, right? And, and I don't want to practice like that. Otherwise you're playing a volume game. You see 40, 50 people a day. I don't, I, I'll put it like this. If you need, if someone told you to paint a wall and gave you 10 minutes to do it, like you could do it, but like, it may not be as good as it would if you had more time. And I feel like the way the visits are pushed on you guys and, you know, you just don't have a choice. You have to see people in the short intervals. And I think sometimes patient education is, is gets missed. And I found that by me slowing down and taking, I mean, I take a long time. I book people for an hour, 45 minutes, hour, depends on what I see. And we talk for a long time. Um, I feel that I'm better. I'm, I'm able to provide better care in that sort of way. But anyways, so I knew I couldn't take insurance. I didn't have an office. You know, I don't really have much startup capital. So I just decided to be mobile and just see what worked. So, you know, I got all my supplies, I set up the LLC, business bank account, business card website, you know, all that stuff is not too difficult. And then it's like just going out there. I mean, I, you know, I went to a hotel one time and I'm like, oh, this will make sense, right? Mobile doc. And it's like, they could not care less. They just wanted me to leave, you know, try CrossFit gyms. And it's like, I'm like, these guys get hurt all the time. And then I realized they never want to cross people do CrossFit never want to go see the doctor ever. Cause all I'm going to do is tell them they can't do CrossFit. And that's no good. So like that was a big X. I tried going to a gym one time, same thing. He tried to sell me a membership. So it was a lot of like, you know, I had my doctor's bag with like all my junk in it and um, you know, just in a suit trying to just figure it out. Um, you know, and then I started doing more networking and making more connections and kind of finding more of what actually worked. Um, for my practice and then trying to get the surgery part set up too Um, and I just kind of keep growing in all directions that I can uh, by mostly trial and error to the point now where it's pretty sustainable I mean um, the model is super durable so because the overhead's low so if I'm not working for a day or I don't have anything like it really doesn't matter I'm not losing money you know Um, uh, office I'm sure your staff is like bare minimum right it was me at first just only me and then now it's me and my wife so So to clarify i don't know if we actually said it easy orthopedics is the the name of the group right in colorado springs and this is a it's basically a house call orthopedic console kind of company right uh yeah for the most part but funny thing happened is that as i was traveling around other docs let's we'll just say let's like chiropractors and said hey can you see this patient in my office Hmm. so i started seeing people at other people's offices and then actually there's an imaging center that has two offices that they never use, like two exam rooms. So I can basically see somebody there whenever I want. And they've got x-ray, MRI, CT scan. Oh, nice. This is all kept. So I do actually have the option of an office space, but there's no financial relationship between us. So they kind of let me come and go through there. Um, so I, you kind of find these weird ways of, of figuring stuff out. And that happened to be one of it. So I, I do tell patients I have an office because I do, but I also travel. I mean, I'll travel up an hour north and hour south you know it just depends yeah. on what i'm doing i think what you said about the you know the, the pressure to see more and more patients is 
it was definitely felt, you know, I've got a 50 patient clinic on Tuesday and uh, I'm only six months into practice. So uh, there's, there's so many times where I, I wish, you know, the, the, the patient, the visit has to be over at some point, right? Like in, in the kind of practice that most of us are in, we cannot sit there for 45 minutes to talk to patients and, and make sure they understand exactly what's going on. But, but medical pathologies and decision-making is complex. And, you know, we want to, we want to allow patients to make an educated decision. And I often feel like they're not, they're not given the time for me to educate them enough to make a good decision. So, so I definitely agree with you on, on that. Um, that's crazy. So, so you, it's just you and your wife. That, that's the only people that are, that are on the, on the payroll, I guess. Yeah, that's it, man. Well, I mean, wow. like, you know, you, you gotta ask yourself, like, what, what do you really need for a doctor patient relationship? Right. Mm -hmm. You need a doctor a provider, you need a patient. And it turns out you don't really need much other stuff. I mean, like, if the thing is, once you remove insurance, you remove so much bureaucratic, um, bureaucratic stuff, it's unbelievable. So there's not actually too many legal laws saying what any of us can or can't do legally. They don't like to pass those laws. Instead, they control what we do by reimbursement. So it's all tied into the Medicare, insurance, whatever. And that kind of creates the whole ecosystem of, of what we do. We're uh, intensely constrained by reimbursement. So if you can unshackle yourself from that, you can essentially practice however you want, um, you know, as long as you stay like HIPAA compliant and, you know, you practice standard of care. But I mean, you're, it's like unplugging from the matrix. I mean, all this stuff kind of just falls away. I mean, my EMR is just a HIPAA compliant Google drive, right? So I just have templated Word documents and they take me, a, uh, you know, a few minutes to write and that's it. I mean, there's nothing, there's no click boxes. I'm not, you know, Sometimes, you know, for if someone wants to build their insurance, I'll generate codes, but I mean, I'm not, you know, EMRs today are for a billing, you know, right. then followed by medical legal and then followed by note taking. So, I mean, and they're so, so expensive. I mean, I paid $12 a month per user. So you're talking $24 a month and I've got all my orders and everything on there. So, cause I've set it up how I want. Um, and I think it's more efficient um, and my notes are readable and I just type them out. I mean, you can pick it up and read it and know exactly what I was thinking. How easy was it for you to get malpractice insurance? Um, to just get malpractice insurance wasn't super difficult. To get the right malpractice insurance took a long time. What do you mean by so, that? <laughs> so um, you can get – initially, they want to sell me on, like, a full orthopedic surgeon, right? And, like, I'm not operating that much, and, like, I'm not seeing that many people. So, like, it's just kind of inappropriate for me. So I eventually I used four different brokers and eventually I found one that got was able to get me part-time um, coverage, which costs significantly less. And it covers my mobile practice as well as surgery. So it just took some work. I mean, you got to convince these underwriters that like what you're doing isn't insane yeah. and you know, they don't like anything that's different. So it took some work, but yeah, definitely. If someone's doing a practice like mine, don't start with full-time malpractice coverage. You just don't need it. You know, you start with like half time or even quarter time. Yeah. And you mentioned that you're still, so how does that work? I'm sorry, what'd you say? You mentioned that you, you still operate. So how does that work? Do you have any like relationships with local surgery centers? Yeah. I was going to ask, how do you get into a surgery? How do you get into an OR? How do you get into a surgical center? Yeah, so that was an extremely difficult problem to solve. So this is the problem I ran into. Maybe you guys are familiar with it. I said, okay, I've got this cash practice. Let me go to some surgery centers nearby. I go to them, meet with the CEO. You know, these aren't hospital owned. And like, oh, yeah, we'd love to have you here. Just go get admitting privileges at this giant behemoth of a hospital down the street. And like, there's two reasons why that doesn't work. One, I don't want to. I don't want to be sucked into the call pool and, you know, and all their junk, right? I'm, I'm purposely separating myself from that. And two is even if I did want to, somewhere on that credentialing board is another orthopedic surgeon, right? A chairman, right? You know, type. And they'll just deny you. They'll just deny you these privileges thinking that if I deny this guy privileges, he won't be able to work. So that was what I ran into fairly quickly. And then what I had to do was find a surgery center that didn't have that requirement. And that requirement is based on a, a Medicare rule that was repealed in September, 2019. So legally in my state, you need to have a transfer agreement, which this place did, and then it happened to work. And uh, so it's small, I can get transparent cash pricing. It can do overnight stays. Um, the downside to that is the only way I found that it was an oral maxillofacial surgeon. Because, uh, you know, health, uh, like health insurance says, well, no, you're dental. And dental insurance says, well, no, you're health. So he's stuck in the middle. So he never ended up 
going and network with anybody, but I've had to put all my own equipment in there if I want to do stuff. So, you know, power set, C-arm, you know, table I just bought, hand table, tourniquet machine. You know, if I don't put it in there, it's not, it's not in there. So it's been tough. And I've, I've had to, you know, be very careful about what I do, making sure that, you know, if I'm doing, deciding to take the case on, I can do a good job. And then that we have the facilities and resources to do them. I mean, so far it's been good. Um, but it's definitely a whole, you know, there's diff, diff, multiple layers of difficulty with that. Um, on the plus side, I have all this equipment that I own now. Um, and I got it all refurbished, right? You don't want to buy it new. You'll, you'll go bankrupt. So you had to buy like your own drills and everything. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, look, you find ways of making this work, right? Like I just bought a, six, a Skytron 6,500 uh, table for $2,000. Huh. um and it was refurbished but it works really well i just found it you know and then i have somebody refurbish it so same thing with my power set i got it actually somebody gave it to me for free and then i spent about three grand to refurbish it um so you know same thing with the c-arm i mean the c-arm i, I bought for about twenty thousand dollars and didn't work and i said if you fix it i'll buy it and you know on ebay the same model sells for about four you know 40 45 000. so I mean, it's just kind of gradually piecing together my OR, hmm. but no, it's certainly not like a hospital where if you drop, you know, something on the floor, you have like five more of them, you know, you have to really be careful about what you're doing and um, make sure that you're not doing any harm. Yeah. So I'm just curious, let's say like, let's say I'm a potential patient, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm working outside, twist my knee, hear a pop. I, I hit up your website, send you, you know, a message saying, hey, can you come over? How, so, Walk me through like what happens, like from yeah. So yeah, if you if you work, you you call, you know, we'll get the message or we'll pick up, talk to my wife. She says, yeah, sure, we can get you in today or tomorrow. If it's really bad, like let's let's say somebody fell on their arm or like they had some trauma, then I'm gonna say I need to see you at the clinic and get X-rays. Um, but otherwise, you know, we tell them the price, and then I just pack up my stuff i go out to see them and then i do what i have to do i carry everything around to do like steroid injections um splinting and casting if i need to or suturing although by and large when i'm doing steroid injections i also have a point of care ultrasound which has been wonderful i've, I've learned that and so i can do now like si or hip joint injections as okay. well which is super convenient you know you can also look at the cuff the rotator cuff or like the sl ligament in the wrist real time i mean it's a huge yeah. You know, I don't know why we don't learn it in residency because it's such a it's such a good tool. Yeah. Um, or at least I didn't. I don't know if you guys did. Um, but yeah, so I just see them. And then when we're done, they pay me, you know, check, credit card, Venmo or whatever. And then they, I give them my phone number, my personal phone number. And I encourage them to call or text me if they have any issues. And then that's it. I go home and I write a short note that probably nobody will ever see. And then that's that's the end of it. So if I need like an MRI or an X-ray or something after that, do you just kind of say, "Hey, you need this. You need to go to a, you know, an imaging center and get it." Yeah. Well, I have con connects at them. So I mean, if you're talking cash for an MRI, it's probably five hundred dollars or a little bit less. So we talk about that, you know, because it's different. It's not like insurance is paying for everything. So we have to, you know, go through these things and see what they want to do and not do. But yeah, I mean, but the plus side is without insurance being involved if i order an mri and they they want to pay for it we can get it done same day next day no problem i'm not nobody fights me on that um because there's nobody to fight yeah what are your what are your hours like because it seems like patients have easy access to you you, know, you give them your phone number they can, they can hit you up whenever and, and it seems like as a small you and your wife you're probably making yourself readily available and, and doing a lot of stuff yourself so what are you, what are you putting into this? I, I am working. Well, it depends. If you're talking about the actual work, work part of it, like as an orthopedic surgeon, I, I don't work a whole lot. I mean, I work significantly less than probably anybody else. You know, my lifestyle is really good. Um, but then I also spend a lot of time on the business aspect of it. What, you know, for whatever that means for that day, whether it's going to lunch, you know, looking for referral bases or getting a bank line of credit or purchasing equipment. So there's more hours there, but I mean, I, you know, I am, I am not grinding away. I'll say that. I mean, I have a lot of free time and to do kind of whatever I want to do. If I want to go on vacation, I just go on vacation. It's not a big deal. But as far as patients contacting me, I mean, I spend so much time with them that usually when I'm done, there's zero questions. Hmm. Um, and awesome. mo most are respectful. So I don't really, uh, they don't really contact me. I mean, 
my phone shuts off at 8 p.m. And the reason why I did that is because I did have one guy who had some psych issues and he kept calling me at like 11 o'clock on Fridays and it was super irritating. So it has happened, but it is, you know, I don't get that many calls. I mean, a whole weekend, if I get one call, I'll be surprised. And I'm happy to take them. You know, they're just somebody I've seen that I developed a relationship with and, you know, looking for some answers. So I really don't mind that. Or sometimes it's by email, you know, or text or whatever. So you, I mean, you've seen it in residency, right? Do you, and you know, as the question goes, patients that are paying for their own care out of pocket, have you noticed any sort of difference in their attitude towards you as a physician compared to like patients you saw in residency that were on insurance? Like, do you notice that they're any more grateful or any, you know, any difference in how they kind of look towards you as a physician? Oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're just glad to find me because there's not too many of me around. Yeah. Um, or people doing what I doing, what I'm doing. In fact, if you can find another orthopedic surgeon who's doing a practice like me, please let me know so I can talk to them and we can bounce ideas off each other. So usually they're really grateful because the other options are going to the big conglomerates in town. And not only are they more, are not cash transparent, which I am, uh, they can't get in for two months. You know, they wait for two hours and then they see the PA instead of me spending 45 minutes to them same day, next day. So most people are really happy about that. And oddly enough, I do see people with insurance. They just don't want to wait or this or that. And, you know, we're easy to get a hold of. And so that happens as well. How do you, how do you set your price points? So that's hard. I mean, you're kind of just making it, it's hard. I mean, you're essentially making it up, but you need to think of like, what's a reasonable price for someone to pay? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to, a lot of docs set their prices too low. And if you do that, people won't use you because they'll think it's too weird. You know, like why, why is this guy only like 30 bucks or whatever? Great. So, but you know, if you charge it too high, people aren't going to do it. So, I mean, you kind of find a happy medium in between there um, to make it viable. And I think considering what people would pay, you know, in other places, it's pretty good, you know. Um, I have this. I have this perception. I don't know if it's true or not. If you know, the patients that that are able to pay cash only, they're they're more affluent patients. They, you know, probably higher socioeconomic class. Is that is that true or is that a false perception based upon your patient base? Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily true. You do have some of that, where it's like someone really likes the convenience of me being mobile, and you know, their house is just humongous, or they have an elevator inside their. <laughs> um which has happened but by and large there's a lot of people small business owners who just don't have insurance so they're you know they're decently well off but not you know they're not rich by any means and they're looking to save money and and do things more economically and having a cash you know it going to your normal practice it's too risky because they nobody can tell them what it's going to cost um so you you kind of get that or you get people with high deductibles and they just don't want to eat into it um or anything like that so no i'd say it's all middle of the road i mean you know i do have patients that i'll see cash and you know they're they're not you know as well off as you would think by any means but yeah people sometimes think i'm just seeing all like rich people in like their mansions and that's just really not what i'm doing so what's stopping other physicians from kind of following your model here that's how, i mean it's insurance companies obviously right but we kind of want to get into that now like I talked to, I guess, another guest we had was Mike Britt, who was, he's a joints guy, older guy, and he was considering going cash practice before he went into academics, right? But the thing that stopped him was, I guess, once you leave CMS and you stop taking CMS for a little bit, it takes, what, like two years or something before you can get back in? And he didn't Mm -hmm. run that in case the practice failed. So um, it's kind of tough, right? I mean, that's like, it's tough to hit that button once you've already been doing it. Yeah, well, it just depends. It depends on your lifestyle and you know what your expenses are. So, you know, if you're a guy who's in that uh, that time of your life, I mean, and you can retire at any time, well, then you've got some. You know, you can accept more risk. But you know, if you're towards the end of your career and you have like three houses and like you know three ex wives and like a bunch of cars and you live paycheck to paycheck, well, you're going to have a tough time because the buildup on the t- practice like this is very long and slow. So, I mean, there'll be periods where you're essentially making almost nothing or you're, you're, you're essentially poor and you have to just accept that and then have faith in yourself and work through it. But it, the activation energy is high and I think it'll remain high for a while um, because, well, 
we haven't as orthopedic surgeons hit the same pain points that let's say family medicine docs have. So they've been getting really crushed. Mm -hmm. And what they've started doing is going cash as well into direct primary care where you, they don't take any insurances. You pay like a monthly retainer and they'll take care of you. So that's kind of a well-established model that they have now. So a lot of them will make the leap into doing that and they can make it they're in their, in their community. They, they help each other out and they'll make it work. Um, I'm still figuring out what the blueprint looks like for orthopedics, um, but we just haven't hit that pain point yet. I think at some point we will as, as reimbursements continue to drop and you know the bureaucracy continues to grow, people will look for another option. Um, but right now we're, you know, we're still compensated pretty well. Um, but I think in time that, that will change. Yeah, yeah you're, you're kind of a trailblazer for all this. It's, it's really interesting. Do you, do, you think, uh, do you think your type of practice is doable in all types of locations and regions or so so i'm, I'm based out of I'm, I'm south of houston you know big city um you're in colorado mo is in upstate new york so so we're all in different climates is this something that's that's possibly successful in all these different areas or do you have to have a specific demographic a specific location i don't know whether i have enough data to, to say for sure so you know, we've only talked about a small part of my, or a part of my practice, which is a significant part, which is the cash, but I also take medical lien as well. Mm -hmm. So, because that's essentially cash. And, and for those that don't know, basically if someone's involved in a car accident, I can see them and put a lien on their settlement case. So I'll get paid in a year or two or whenever it settles. But for me, that works because I'm not fighting with an insurance company. I may have to talk to the lawyer, but that, that's okay. Um, and if I order an MRI, no one's fighting with me. No one's auditing my notes. So I'm still, it happens to be functional with my practice. So that's, you know, that industry is in most areas, you know, and there's also medical legal work, which I, I would encourage a lot of orthopedic surgeons to get into. You don't have to wait till you're 65 and old and withered to be like, okay, let me do some of this now. Um, you know, that can be an excellent source of cash as well, as far as independent medical exams, record review, uh, deposition and testimony. So I know a lot of docs have a real uh, aversion to lawyers, but, you know, talking to lawyers, they don't like malpractice cases because A, they're, they're, you have areas with tort reform, you know, B, they're really hard cases. I mean, you have to prove a lot. And then you, a lot of times they can't get anybody locally to like comment on it. So they end up paying like $30,000, $40,000 to fly an expert witness out. So, I mean, these cases are, are difficult and lawyers don't really want them. So I think the whole mentality of all the lawyers just waiting around the corner, waiting for me to make a grammatical error on my note is just kind of ludicrous. Um, and then not all lawyers do med mal, or, you know, most of them don't, you know. So, you know, it, it's really, you know, it's like all the different specialties that we have in medicine, that's like the same with lawyers. And, you know, people who just do family law or real estate or I don't know. I think any successful business person usually has a lot of lawyers that they can, you know, they talk with and who they associate with. So I think it's a mistake for orthopedic surgeons to kind of just steer away from that altogether. Because yeah. I mean, you can build a medical legal practice that can, you know, it's another source of income and it's cash. I mean, and you control that, you know, the dangerous thing is to have all your income coming from one place because if you lose it, you have, you went from something to literally zero. Um, why do you think that aversion is? Um, I think, I don't know. I think it's the way we're taught and the way we're taught defensive medicine. You know, don't, you know, watch out. You know, I mean, people making consent forms a mile long, all this junk and that like any, any certain, any, at any moment, somebody's like, you know, the lawyers are hiding behind the corner and going to find you and sue you. It's just, I mean, I don't know. It's just like the way we're all brought up in this kind of, you know, CYA type you know, training. Um, but the truth is, I mean, if you have a good relationship with your patient, I mean, they're really not going to sue you. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, you could be the best surgeon in the world and you can get sued for a splinter removal right. if the person doesn't like you. Right. Yeah. I got threatened. I got a lawsuit threatened at me for not prescribing the right color ankle brace to a patient. That's not a joke. That was like a couple of weeks. How dare you? That's crazy. But that will never go yeah. anywhere. Well, it will never go, but it just shows how frivolous a lot of that yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do have some scumbags roaming around who will do stuff like that. I mean, but for a real medical malpractice case to really go and like get you, like it usually has to be something pretty egregious um, and well outside the standard of care. So let's go to the insurance companies. You mentioned some of this before. What's your biggest gripe with insurance? They just suck, man. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do. Well, they, they're essentially practicing medicine without a license, right? I mean, you guys are seeing the patients. You're seeing them in your office with all your medical knowledge and skill. And you're saying, we need to get an MRI. We need to do this. It's like, okay, well, let me ask the insurance company. Oh, the insurance company said no. I mean, it's altering the care. Um, so I think it makes the care worse in a lot of ways, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they end up approving 90-something percent of stuff anyway. So it's just attrition because maybe, you know, nine out of 10 docs will fight to get the MRI. But one of them says, well, I don't have time. So then, you know, that's money they save. But I mean, they profit in the billions, in the billions profit. And like they drive the costs up so high by all the overhead you need to hire. And they basically forced everybody into these high volume models where I think the care is, is oftentimes not as good as it would be otherwise. Um, and also for employers, I mean, it affects everybody. You know, the premiums are going up like 15, 20% a year. Um, so your employer pays that. And so it, it, they're paying your insurance company, you're less likely to get a raise. So, I mean, it's affecting all assets it's just basically parasitically pulling money out of the system i mean if you get a, an exchange plan right obamacare exchange plan and you don't get a subsidy i mean you could pay a thousand dollars a month with a seven thousand dollar deductible with a network that's razor thin so you're essentially spending twenty thousand dollars a year before they pay dollar one and then if you're out of network they won't even pay that one dollar yeah. so i mean it, it's not good for it's terrible for patients that it's just it's a big parasitic suck on the system um yeah. That's, that's anyone who's in a peer to peer kind of knows how that goes, right? Like a lot of these companies have their own algorithms on how things should be treated when, you know, I'm a big proponent that medicine isn't, especially surgery, especially orthopedic surgery can't be, it, you can't summarize it into an algorithm because there's so many outlying factors that change things. So not every, not every patient that needs an MRI needs six weeks of physical therapy and NSAIDs before getting it. Right. You can't do it for everyone and they don't really realize it. So then you're right, you're stuck. You had to put in the effort to schedule a call with another physician who has to call you. You have to take time out of your clinic to pick it up and argue with them for a little bit, see if they'll approve it. And you got to reset. It's more paperwork. You got to hire more people to do the paperwork and to schedule the calls. And then eventually you end up getting an MRI, but I mean, like, what's the cost, right? So it's, it's a killer. And not only that, I think it's one of the biggest reasons for physician burnout now. Like you talk to a lot of surgeons and they're just, you know, it's, it's painful. You spend more time dealing with insurance than you do actually helping people. And it just drives the burnout rate through the roof. So I, I mean, I look, I totally agree with you. My, one of my biggest gripes is with insurance and it's like an unchecked, it's an unchecked problem, right? It's just going to keep growing and growing. Cause I don't see an end to it unless, you know, someone else steps in. Yeah, you guys are right. Like, like you said earlier, the, uh, have a patient physician relationship. All you need is, are, are those two people, and then in the current healthcare system, there's so much fluff and so many people financially benefiting off of, off of the doctors who, who are doing all the work and have all the training. It's extremely frustrating. We, we probably talk about it on this podcast, if not every week, every other week. It's a, it's a pretty frequent theme. Um, where, where do you see this going in the future? Because, you know, I think, I think we've, we've all hinted already at getting worse and worse. Is it, is it just going to keep being worse until something major happens to change it? Or is it just going to, how do you see this playing out in like 10, 20 years? Well, they're extremely profitable right now. So, I mean, if you're looking for any change coming from top level congressional stuff, I mean, you're look, you're talking multi-billion dollar companies that have whole lobbying arms, right? So, I mean, how, the, how are you going to fight that? You can't. I mean, you know, you can put together your own path, but it's going to pale in comparison to all these experts. I mean, they can hire former senators and former, you know, congressmen to lobby on their behalf. But anyways... I think what's going to happen is that it'll keep getting worse. There'll be more and more requirements and the reimbursements will go down and down. And I think the major change will probably start to happen from employers who are saying like, hey, this is my number two line item. I can't afford this anymore. We got to do something else. And what some employers have started to do is saying, okay, we're going to self-fund, meaning that we're going to pay. We're not going to buy an insurance plan. We're going to pay for all the care for all of our employees. And then we'll get an insurance policy, like a stop loss in case it goes like, you know, into the millions or whatever, depending on the size. And then so I think more they'll start employers will start direct contracting with physicians. Um, and that's the world I'm trying to work in. I'm, I'm essentially direct contracting with my individual patients when I see them. 
And that'll be disruptive to the insurance company as their as their need is not needed as much. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, the, they'll start losing accounts. And I think that's how you get things to change more on, on that side than any sort of like legislative because they're going to rig the game every time. I mean, you know, they're, 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 they have so much lobbying power. I mean, they're so profitable. Have you, have you gotten to the point yet where you're able to, to have those contracts with, with companies, you know, smaller companies and employers? No, but I'm working on it. That's the next nut I'm trying to crack. And that's a right. difficult one because direct primary care doctors, like we talked about, they're doing that. Um, and I want to be like direct orthopedics on top of that. You know what I mean? Because I think if you get an orthopedic surgeon into some of these large companies, I mean, you can prevent surgeries, you know, you're not incentivized to cut on everybody. And I think the, the value would be tremendous. I mean, all you have to do is prevent like one unnecessary spine surgery a year, and you've essentially paid for yourself. Right. Yep. Um, so I'm trying to get into that space, but it's so new that, you know, it, it, though, it takes a while to even for direct primary care doctors to get those contracts like really settled and running. You're talking a year to two years, so that's a slow-moving animal. It's so much tougher for you, though, as a surgeon, right? Because there's so much ancillary use that you have to have, right? So, like, imaging, therapy, implant, surgery, all that stuff. Or, that's yeah. stuff that family practice docs don't need, right? I mean, they can go order a lab for your medicine or for your cholesterol. You can take it to Quest Diagnostics, get your lab done, and give it back to them, right, pretty cheaply. It's not the case for you, mostly. So that's a big hurdle. Yeah, and so the, the, the thing is figuring that out. So, I mean, the imaging is relatively easy to solve. You know, the surgery was a little bit tougher, but doable. I mean, these problems are all solvable. I haven't come across one that's just an unsolvable problem. You just need to figure out how to do it. And, you know, you can usually come up with some pretty good, elegant solutions to these things. Have you had depending to, on like, what kind of surgeries do you do? Like, like, do you do joints at all? No. I don't. I mean, you got to remember there's multiple reasons why I don't. A, I don't do them regularly. So people right. are going to be much better at them than I will. Um, B, my facility doesn't have the, you know, like the HVAC system and everything to do them. And then three, I've opted out of Medicare. So you got to understand that, you yeah. know, most of the joint population has been removed from the people that well, I see. What about like, like fracture fixation? Like how do you decide implants and how do you have like contracts with specific companies at all? Anything like that? Yeah. So, um, like I did a distal radius about two months ago and the, the process was trying to get this guy in as fast as I could. So the thing's not healed, you know, so that's another complication I deal with. And then I talk with the implant company. I say, this is cash. They say, here's the price for an implant. And this is the price for the facility. And then my price, I bundle it together. I give it to them. They paid me. And then I paid off everybody else. Um, you know, and I give my preference cards and make sure everything's set up. And, and then the guy ends up doing really well, but for him, you know, he was a 41-year-old roofer, had his own business. I was able to do it for $6,500 all in. And I don't know if that's the price I was able to do it for that day. You know, I don't own the center, so things can change. And maybe that was too expensive. Maybe that was too cheap. I don't know. Probably the latter. Um, but he wasn't going to get it done. You know, he was just going to let it go because the hospital quoted him 27000 plus facility plus anesthesia. So probably 50000 So, I mean, there's some real potential here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you got to coordinate every little thing. I mean, and, and it can be difficult, especially with something fracture care where there's a time, you got a timer ticking and look, I've said no to stuff too. I mean, someone called me the other day that was like a trimalleolar fracture and I don't think it was quite well reduced. And by the time I got to it, it would have been a month. And I'm like, no, thank you. You know, like mm. I'm not going to take the case if I don't think I'm going to be able to help them, you know? Yeah, yeah. sure. So I think the tricky part is you're you're very you're transparent with your prices, which is great. But you're essentially, your competitors are is everyone else who who does deal with insurance, and those guys are not transparent with their prices. So the patient doesn't have that direct comparison. Even 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 if long term, even if they would save money or or at least be equivalent by going to you, the, the patient's not able to see that, right? Um, it depends. I mean, if uh, well. What, what'll happen is they'll get a quote from a local place and they'll be so astronomical. Then they start looking around and they find me and then I give them a binding quote, which these other places aren't doing it. It's less, mm -hmm. but I mean, this is still a work in progress. I mean, I, I would be lying to you if I said I had it all figured out. So I kind of take them things as I get them, you know, I do a lot of cadaver labs as well, just to keep myself, you know, keep the skills up as best I can. And I just, I'm very careful about what I do. And so far it's been good. Um, but you know, I, I have that ability to say like, no, I'm not going to do this or like, yes, this is something I want to do.
price price transparency is pretty it's a tough issue right because every hospital every insurance company has a big thing about them is they don't have to tell you their prices there's no legal legal mandate for them to dis disclose what the pricing is for anything so nobody knows right so we don't have a set standard and that's kind of how they keep everyone in the dark and i think that also contributes to just this whole mess that's going on you know as far as everything goes i I want to say at one point it was supposed to be a mandate under the Trump administration or they were talking about it. I think a law did get passed and you'd have to look it up where they are supposed to, they do have to tell you their prices, but I mean, it's such gobbledygook yeah. that you can't even make heads or tails and you don't even know if they're binding. So it's like, you know, that would be you going to buy a car and you find out that it costs 10,000 more just because no reason. Right. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> They're not, you know, they make, look, these large hospital systems, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, I mean, they make so much money. I mean, like they are, they are, want the status quo. They want to keep the status quo. And, um, you know, I'm trying to disrupt it in my own small way, but they make money off the status quo. I mean, a lot of people make a lot of money off the status quo and they're, 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 they want to keep it the same. I mean, even with Obamacare, it did some really good things, you know, in a certain sense, but it kept the status quo. It had to, because if it didn't, it would have never passed. Mm -hmm. So they right. had to tell insurance companies, you're going to make more money. Hospital systems, you're going to make more money. Pharmaceuticals, we're not going to touch your, the fact that Medicare can't negotiate its drug prices. And like, it kept things the same um, by just quote unquote, providing people with, you know, more insurance, but health insurance doesn't equate to health care. You know, they're different. Yeah. That's an important point that people don't really realize coverage and care are not the same thing. Um, what do you think about some of these like alternative insurance models, like like the Kaiser system, where it's kind of all a network and you, you pay for you know, the Kaiser insurance and you can go to basically any Kaiser that you want. Like a lot of places are doing this bigger practices where they kind of have their own insurance that you buy in. And um, it's almost like a direct care model, right? A little bit. Yeah, that's actually the first insurance in the United States. I think it may have been the 50s, maybe even earlier, but that was basically what it was. I think it was in Texas somewhere at Baylor, actually. So like they would tell, tell teachers, like you pay us a certain amount and we'll let you get like 10 days in the hospital or something like that. And, you know, that's kind of the concept of an HMO, which in theory seems to make sense, but it's just been co-opted by insurance and yeah. ruined essentially. Yeah. Um, I, I think our healthcare is still going to be really inefficient and expensive and therefore crappy as long as all these parasites are floating around the system. So if you can remove them and let a doc just do, if you leave a doctor to their own devices, they'll usually do a really good job. Um, but you're just not left to your own devices. I mean, man, if you guys spend 45 minutes with a patient, like you'll get pushed out of your practice. Yeah. They'll right. be like, oh my God, you know, you'll, people start talking. You can't do that. I mean, you know, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a tough, it's a tough game. So how do I you think it's parasite so, removal. Yeah. How do you do that though? How do you remove parasites? Well, I think fighting them head on is basically impossible. So what I do is I just, I remove them from the care that I give. So in my healthcare model or my practice, there's no need for health for hospital systems or insurance companies. I mean, like I don't deal with them. They're not part of the conversation. So they've been removed from the equation. And I think if you can get enough of that, then you'll start to see some real disruption. But I mean, you know, these are such, I mean, I think Warren Buffett just tried to have a business start and he just with something called Haven Health and he gave up. He said it was too difficult. Hmm. I think he said he fought the tapeworms and the tapeworms won or something. I mean, this guy is worth billions of dollars, right? Like yeah. business genius. And it's not easy. It's not easy. It's like, it's like what, 18, 20% of the GDP. I mean, you're yeah. finding something big. It's insane. The, the healthcare spending just has gone up and up over the decades. It's not because doctors are getting paid more or it's not because there's more doctors. It's because of everyone else profiting off of, off the doctors and the, in the system. So Completely agree with you. Do you do you think uh, do you think your practice would be easier with with partners? So, you know, if you had another one of you in the same, you know, like kind of making a couple doctors doing this thing, would it be easier? Or would it be harder? Or would there be more more challenges potentially? I mean, I'm not busy enough to add another doctor in right now. Yeah. Um. So, like, I, I don't really, you know, as far as adding another doctor in a different location, if somebody wanted to franchise it, I, I don't know. Someone's approached me about that before. I'm still thinking about it, but um, I don't think, you know, orthopedic surgeons can be very difficult people too. I mean, oh, yeah. 
yeah you roll in the dice right half the time it's like man i'd love to grab drinks with this guy go on vacation with him and my family and they're great you know greatest people you'll find and then the other 50 percent, you're like wow i this person is a terrible human being um like they may they may fix people but they are they are a crappy person just based on the way they treat people they don't respect anybody and they're not like criminal they're not like criminals but you know they're not they're not good people and they can be extremely difficult and self-centered and arrogant, and narcissistic to deal with. So it, it, you got to be, you got to be careful. We don't, you got to know which one you're getting before you start working with them. Um, so it sounds like there's a lot of those. For, for your type of model, it's probably a good idea to start solo until you get busy enough. It sounds like, and, uh, and then potentially see. And then the other aspect too, is just because people are, you get along with them outside of work and outside the hospital doesn't necessarily make them great business partners right so yeah and historically doctors are pretty bad at business um i think one we don't have the time to devote to it um and two we take this kind of you know confidence in the face of unknowns and project that onto the business world where we just make terrible decisions um so my advice to any doctors are if you have a financial advisor that says oh i i work with just doctors you better think twice because they're just they, they see us as suckers you know they target us so right. i would just take a step back there for a second um i i tend to avoid anything aimed at doctors because i don't trust them yeah do you think um what do you think about like the edu- business education or training like I mean, obviously i know we don't get enough but i think we all three would agree with that um how do we improve it though i guess is my bigger question how do we get more people to realize like what realize that people are taking advantage of like that's been my big thing i realized that some like about halfway through my fellowship is that a lot of people especially because you brought up the financial advisors right a lot of people see us as bags of money that don't have a lot of business acumen or a lot of uh idea of what the business world is like and that they can kind of take one percent off the top from us for managing your finances so to speak right and i think administrators do the same thing where they give you these contracts that throw you know big dollar sign at you but you don't read the non-compete you don't read you know all the other stuff the call not getting paid for call the restrictions all the other time commitments that come with it so they're taking their percent off the top and eventually you're left with you know whatever many little percent that you have left that's actually for you and i'm not talking financially i mean not just financially but time and and money also um how do we fix that how do we get more people in training to kind of realize this yeah, I think you brought up a lot of good points there. You know, especially the non-compete, I urge anyone, do not sign them. You know, in some states, they're actually illegal. I refuse to ever sign one. Um, and people have offered me them before. I mean, they're not, it's not like we're carrying trade secrets around, right? I mean, to give somebody a 50-mile, 200-mile non-compete, I mean, that's just ludicrous. And it doesn't even hold up most of the time. It'll yeah. just cost you a certain amount of money with a lawyer to get out of it. Um, but so the question is, you know, how, how do we give people business skills? Well, I mean, it's tough because in residency, you're essentially, you are a commodity to the hospital in a lot of ways. I mean, you are getting training, right? And I'm not saying they're ultimately using you like that, but the cost of a resident, you get, they get paid by CMS, what, like $120,000 a year per resident per year. And they pay you half of that maybe plus benefits. So let's say they net, like, I don't know, let's just say $30,000. But if they compare you to a PA where they'd have to hire and pay, like, you know, all that money, the, the difference is huge. So the economics are involved here. So, I mean, you're, you're a commodity at that time. You know, they're probably not interested in teaching you about financial independence. I mean, as far as putting that into the curriculum, I mean, you know, you barely have time to survive. So, I mean, you're talking your 7 p.m. lecture, you know, where you're just worn out and co- you know, covered in sweat. Like, you're not even, you are going to care. It's not on the test. You, you're not going to care. It's a tough avenue. Um, I, I mean, then you're talking like business classes, you know, if you want to work in a corporate structure, then I guess those are fine. But as far as just the like on the street business skills, I mean, I think if you have a, a business mentor would be a good way to do it. Um, probably the best way I, I can think of off the top of my head. You know, somebody who's made these mistakes and can talk to you and say, hey, you know, before you do this, just know that there's sharks in the water here and you're coming out wanting to help people, but they're after your blood. So be careful. Um, because there are a lot and we do make a lot of mistakes and it'd be nice if we could learn from other people's mistakes instead of our own mistakes. But I think that would be tough to get in the curriculum and have any real effect. 
Yeah. I think you're, you're absolutely right about one thing about how, you know, a 7 p.m. lecture, we're already tired. We don't, we don't have energy for it. And I remember there were some lectures in residency that were not related to actual orthopedics that I thought, you know, this would be really freaking interesting to, to learn about. But at the end of the day, you know, we've got, they, they burden you with so much work. You know, I got 30 x-ray orders to put in tonight. You know, I got to prepare for my four cases. I got to write my, you know, 30 notes from the other day that uh, you, you really don't have the mental brain space or energy to, to take in that, that new information. So I, I agree, I think it'd be really hard to do in the, cur the current way that residency is done, um, unless you have a particular interest already in that stuff. Um, so maybe it should, maybe instead of trying to find a way to build into the curriculum, we should find a way to spur that interest in people somehow. And then people who have that interest will, will go, go out of their way and learn it themselves, hopefully. Um, yeah, I didn't really develop any of that interest until recently. So I went all throughout residency not knowing anything about finances. Right. And that's too late though, right? Like after you yeah. contract, it's too late for that. You got, I mean, that's a, you're already, you're committed at that point, right? I yeah, mean, I, I mean, don't think you're ever really committed. I mean, I, you know, I, there, it's you know, nice having guests like Dr. Paul on here and, and see kind of how different people have different practices to, uh, you know, to get ideas and I don't think we're ever really committed. So it's never too late to learn. You can always blow it up. Yeah. So <laughs> you may blow it up some of yourself, but you can always blow yeah. it up. You can always hit the reset button. Um, it's not easy, but you can do it. <laughs> let, let me ask you this, says so I mean myself and Dr. Khalid, we're we're both in our board collections period and it seems like talking to you, you, you kind of, this is like your first thing, right? You, you look for jobs. You didn't really find one that you, that you wanted and you started this. So did you have to go through the sort of certification process? And what did that look like? Cause we have to collect for six months straight, right? But you have to have admitting privileges to do it. Anymore. You have to have admitting privileges and you have to be in a practice for what, like 18 months straight or something like that. How does, how does that work for you? Yeah, so the whole topic of board certification. So, you know, I took the test like you guys did and, and passed right. it. Apparently makes me board eligible. But yeah, I mean, A, I don't have the surgical volume right now to sit for the oral board. So maybe I'm technically in my collection period. I don't even know, slash care. Um, <laughs> two is like, yeah, it, that's right. They do want you to have hospital admitting privileges. So when I do get right. the volume, I'm going to have to figure out what I want to do. And if these guys are intent on not giving me, letting me sit for the boards, then I won't be board certified with the ABOS. However, the more I learn about board certification, you know, board certification came around because before there was like ACGME accreditation of programs. So like, hey, this is a mark saying this person is legitimate. We've tested them. And over time, I think, you know, with all the regulations of the ACGME, I mean, you come out of training, usually you're pretty good. I mean, will you have some outliers? Sure. I mean, but even you have board, cert board certified doctors who have outliers. And I don't think there's been any proof that shows that a board certified doctor is less, you know, is, is, is less dangerous than not one who isn't. Um, but to answer your question, what I'm gonna do specifically is I don't really know. Um, I, I may never be board certified with ABOS. However, there are a bunch of other orthopedic boards that I didn't know about. Hmm. And the certification process is not as onerous. So I may just end up doing that. I mean, right now it hasn't prevented me from doing anything. I'm so far off the grid that I just, I don't think it really matters a whole lot. I mean, sometimes I'll lose some business from someone's looking for a medical exam from out of state and they want, they're looking for some old geezer or orthopedic surgeon with like 30 years of experience. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's just not me. Right. Um, but no, it's certainly a frustrating point because, you know, if this was another specialty, I would already be board certified after having passed that test. And the real screwed up thing to me isn't the initial certification. It's really the maintenance of certification. So now you've gone through five years of training and you've taken this test, which is difficult, right? And then you pass this oral exam and then they're like, oh, by the way, you're going to have to take another one of these and do 10 other things during that period. And then we'll judge if you're okay to sit for the next exam. You know, it's a, it's a billion dollar industry. So I, I do think there's some level of corruption because it's, it's such a, you know, there's so much money to be made with these uh, maintenance of certification. Um, so I don't know. I, I kind of have a different perspective of it now. Um, but, you know, certainly frustrating, you know, as I'm going rogue, but like, what am I going to, I'm not going to go back into the system for two years just to get board certified. Right. It wouldn't it be a good like, use of my time and effort. I mean, it seems like it doesn't really affect your practice much, which is, which is cool. I mean, for us, you know, we're all trying to get board certified. We want to put it on our website, board certified physician, blah, blah, blah. 
but for you, it, it doesn't seem like it actually has any any real role, does it? I mean, that's that's awesome. I mean, your patients will never care. Right. That's just like almost a fact. Like they maybe one every once in a while will, but you know, I, I, and, and you know, lawyers don't really care either. I mean, I was talking to one lawyer and he was telling me that he had somebody on the stand and it was this general surgeon from England and like he wasn't board certified, but like nobody cares. I mean, I've talked to multiple and like, it just doesn't matter really to them. I think where it does matter is to like hospitals and that sort of thing. If you want to do Medicare utilization review, which you probably don't know who the hell does, um, it matters in that way. And some of these like workers comp, more, you know, bureaucratic areas, they really want to see it. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it's more of just an annoyance, at least, you know, the fact that I don't have it, but not anything that's, you know, stopped me from doing anything. Because legally, you have your medical license and you have malpractice. I mean, you can practice. That's all you need. It's a really good point because I know I've asked myself and I've asked my friends, like, why are we doing this? You know, why are we putting ourselves through these board collection stuff? And like, I don't want to say too much because I'm still in the board collections. I don't want them to hear this and then like fail me. <laughs> but like, why? Why? Right? Like, I mean, yeah. or deep state. Patient asked me once, "Are you board certified?" Like, nobody knows what that means. Right? It's a it's a thing that's basically made up amongst our orthopedic. Some people decide. Yes. That is pain the ass now. It's pain the ass because they now now you know obviously we have to there's there's patient report outcome scores that are involved now, so I have to disclose to my patients that I'm not board certified and they they email your patients. Yeah, they email your patients and you have to disclose to them. It's it's a process. Uh, patients look at me they're like wait you're not a real doctor yeah <laughs> it's just like what oh my god uh, crazy yeah well the, the board the boards are lobbying to make it seem to, to into these systems to make it so that you have to have it right yeah, because right. you know that's where they make their money if, they, if it if it didn't function you know and there's been some efforts by different people uh, you know to try and uncover kind of what's going on you know I think it was the American Board of Internal Medicine ended up having this like, uh, you know, don't quote me on this, but they had this like million dollar apartment in Philadelphia and like, you know, they make a, a, a lot of money comes from this, right? Yeah. And the question is, is it really necessary? And, you know, I don't know. There's no evidence to show that it is. That, that right. Is you know, it's, it's not like you got some level one studies saying, hey, all these board certified doctors don't make any mistakes and the ones that aren't board certified do. Yeah, and we have anecdotal evidence to the contrary. So, and I mean the other right. point, the other point you brought up is that it, it's so different in our specialty than, than any other specialty. And I don't know why. I don't know who decided to do it this way. Like I know a lot of other surgical specialties. Like I mean, they give you anecdotal scenarios that you kind of just go talk about. I mean, that seems like a way more realistic test, right? Not it. It takes. It's going to take me about a couple nights of call to just pay to do it. You know, and that's like what two a day and a half or two days worth of work just to pay to get to have the opportunity to be board certified, right? To sit, to sit. I mean, assuming you've satisfied all the other criteria, right. and then after you let, let's say you guys sit and pass, which I'm sure you will, um, you got all this maintenance of care, right? And yeah. that's just not sitting for a test in ten years. You have to do this constant CME junk, um, you know, for at least half of the years and pay more money. And then they're going to re-audit you and talk to the head of anesthesia in the hospital and whatever to make sure that you're okay to sit again, yep. even though you've been practicing now for, you know, over 10 years, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, do that again and again. I mean, then you'll be in your fifties and sixties doing that. And like, what's the point? I mean, but then you have the guys who got it before 1990 or 1989, they're good for life. And they're probably could use the most re-education yep. out of anybody, you know? Um, so, you know, how is that? Okay. I mean, I don't know that it, it's a whole topic in and of itself. And um, there's certainly a lot of frustrations and, but I mean, for me, I don't know uh, the way I look at it is you just follow the money because, you know, it's a money-making operation just and then everything else follows from there. Does it do some good? I'm sure it does, but does it aggravate probably everybody? I think it also does that as well. Dr. Paul, uh, we've hit about an hour. I just want to thank you for your time. I think I think we've all had these frustrations with the system, and you know, I've I've seen doctors who, you know, some of my former attendings who have been successful within the system and and playing the game, 
uh, but you're someone who's completely just taking herself out of the system, which, which is, which is amazing to see. And I, I really look forward to seeing how you do in, in your business and um, it's, it's going to be cool. So thanks again for your time. Um, if you could answer one question that we ask everyone, uh, what's your favorite bone? Oh my goodness. What's my favorite bone, man. I can tell you what my least favorite bone is. I don't know if that's, which is probably the humorous. It gets broken in the middle. Okay, broken up top or bottom, disaster. <laughs> and then, Favorite bone? I, man, I don't know. I'm going to say the radius for no good reason. Okay. Sure. And then, Mo, do we have time for a, a good dude of the week? Do you I, have one ready? I didn't have one ready. We'll just, we'll get the next, we'll get it next time. We'll, we'll do it next time. Okay. <laughs> All right, Dr. Paul, thanks All a right. lot. Thanks, well, thanks for having me. All right, yeah. take care. You got to do this again. Thanks. Yep. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you to Dr. Paul for giving us an hour of his time. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with Dr. Paul, you can do so at his website, easyorthopedics.com, or on his Twitter, at easyortho1. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so very similarly at our Twitter, at orthotalkpod. If you want to listen to any of our other episodes or find uh, the links to any of our other episodes, our website is orthotalkpod.com, or you can see the video for any of our episodes at our YouTube channel, OrthoTalk Podcast on YouTube. If you want to shoot us an email, you could do so at theorthopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions, we'd love to hear them. And thank you for the opportunity.